welcome to the History of Crows, a podcast on the evolution of electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO, and the men and women, the crows, who changed the way we conduct military operations and the way we live around the world. The History of Crows will help you navigate the intersection of military history, technology, and scientific discovery through insights and stories from the people and warfighters who know how to fight in the electromagnetic spectrum. We take you through the important discoveries, inventions, battles, and developments that make the Crow motto true. To be the first in and the last out in any military operation today. The History of Crows is brought to you by the Association of Old Crows, or the AOC, an international professional organization of people who are experts in electromagnetic warfare and signals intelligence. To learn more about the AOC, please visit www.crows.org. Thank you for listening. The roots of electronic warfare lie in radar countermeasures, specifically radar countermeasures in World War II. We tend to hear more about the aerial radar countermeasure operations in the European campaign, but these operations were used elsewhere. They were used extensively in the Southwest Pacific. Early in the Pacific War, the Allies believed that the Japanese did not have the capability to produce and operate complex radar equipment. So it came as a shock to them when Japanese radar was discovered during the six-month campaign at Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands. Here, the Japanese had employed the use of the Shikaku carrier radar. It was the first system to employ a Type 21 early warning radar. These Japanese radars were located using radar receiver sets that were initially operated by the Royal Australian Air Force RCM operators who were flying in aircraft from Northern Australia and New Guinea. But the Japanese radars were very effective. At one point in battle, they detected US aircraft at 97 nautical miles. It was the best performance by any radar on either side. Significant radar countermeasures, or RCM, were required but the U.S. wouldn't be the ones to lead the way in the development of RCM in the Pacific Theater. Rather, the Commonwealth partners worked together to face the advanced threat from Japan. After the war, U.S. authors wrote about radar countermeasures, but they negated the significant early efforts of their Commonwealth partners and a group that many know very little of, MacArthur's Section 22 Radar Hunters. In MacArthur's General Headquarters Southwest Pacific area, Section 22 was the radar intelligence branch and what is referred to today as electronic intelligence. Section 22 was made up of personnel from Australia, Britain, the Netherlands, New Zealand, as well as the United States Army, U.S. Army Air Force, U.S. Navy, and the U.S. Marine Corps. But the majority of Section 22 personnel came from the Australian military forces. In this episode, we're going to hear the stories of Japanese radar advancement and the RCM operations in the Pacific Theater. To share these stories, we welcome Mr. Trent Talenko, Section 22 Special Interest Group List Admin. Mr. Talenko's career and expertise spans electronic warfare and defense intelligence in the Pacific, including Section 22 Special Interest Group, aka SIG, which was responsible for mapping the Australian, New Zealand, and American archives for Section 22 materials. The birth of Section 22 was much needed in the Southwest Pacific because, as was mentioned earlier, the U.S. and Commonwealth partners learned almost too late that perhaps the Japanese did have powerful capabilities when it came to radar. In the Pacific War, 
electromagnetic spectrum operations were driven by the fact that what you thought you knew, which wasn't so, very often killed you. The example of the Japanese in Pearl Harbor is burned in the minds of Americans almost 80 years on, but the EMSO side of it is not as well known, and both involve a single Japanese admiral, Isoroku Yamamoto. Admiral Yamamoto was the architect behind the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was also the head of the Naval Technical Division for the Imperial Japanese Navy from 1929 to 1934. It was in this time that Yamamoto would greatly transform Japanese military power. During this time, he shepherded the Japanese from being a challenging military power, that is, one that copied just to keep up, to a military power that was a peer, that is, it took technologies, some of its own and some from others, and innovated that technology to fit its own military doctrines, rather than copying that of others. The example of Japan from 1929 through 1939 very much parallels what we see today with China in the 2010s to the 2020s. That is, a military power that has made that transition from copying to innovating. The recent example of the FOBs plus hypersonic glide vehicle with China was paralleled in the 1930s by Admiral Yamamoto creating a system of radio beacons to support his land-based twin-engine torpedo bombers as a part of the Japanese Kentai Kesen doctrine. Kentai Kesen translate roughly as decisive battle. The major problem for this doctrine, to gain a decisive battle after a long attrition against the American fleet in Western Pacific waters for the Japanese Navy, is they had too many battlecruiser missions and not enough battlecruisers, thanks to the Washington Naval Treaties. The Washington Naval Treaties were signed by the major allies of World War I. They agreed that to prevent an arms race, they would each limit naval construction. This treaty had a profound effect on the Japanese. With superior American and even British industrial power, it was very likely that a long war would end in Japanese defeat. Therefore, it was not economically possible to gain naval equality on the strategic level. Admiral Yamamoto held that Japan should remain in the treaty and was therefore regarded by many as a member of the treaty faction, a party within the Japanese Navy that believed that they could not afford an arms race with the West. Yamamoto felt that the United States could greatly outproduce Japan because the U.S. had a huge production advantage. So Yamamoto created a fleet of twin-engine torpedo planes to deal with enemy battlecruisers raiding Japanese shipping vessels in the South China Seas. As these aircraft were deployed, there were also deployment of radio beacons all throughout the South China Sea. The aircraft then used the radio beacons with an adapted Telefunken radio direction finder that the Japanese borrowed from and developed for these torpedo planes. This radar beacon system went online in 1937 and was used to fight the Chinese in the raids on Chongqing, uh, Operations 100 in May of 1939, Operation 101 in May 1940, and Operation 102 in June of 1941. The Japanese developed a system of operating at night using these radio beacons to bomb this Chinese city. And it was the backbone of the C3I system that allowed 
the massing of large numbers of torpedo planes to sink the British Force Z in the South China Sea and, and put the Prince of Wales and the Repulse on the bottom of the South China Sea. The Japanese C-3I system developed while Admiral Yamamoto was head of the technical division of the Japanese Air Force. This was the system that would greatly surprise the Allies. This is, you know, what you think you know, which isn't so, kills you every time. And that is the example. Uh, the British had a doctrine of economic warfare built around cruisers and battle cruisers. But the Japanese, unknown to the British, had developed a C-3I system that simply made that doctrine obsolete in the South China Seas. The parallel today would be the evolution of Chinese anti-ship cruise and ballistic missiles combined with their over-the-horizon backscatter radars for tracking ships in the South China Sea. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And this is one of those cases where the Pacific War of almost 80 years ago echoes in, in today's EMSO operations. The Japanese C-3I system posed new threats in the Southwest Pacific. Allies and Commonwealth partners now saw what the Japanese military was capable of. Countermeasures were necessary to thwart their attacks. So as the Japanese advanced their technological strategies, a group in the Pacific formed to plan how to counteract them. As was mentioned earlier, when it came to radar countermeasures, the U.S. didn't lead the charge so much as they followed in the footsteps of others. The first radar countermeasures organization was actually formed following a meeting in Melbourne, Australia. It was here where MacArthur Section 22 radar hunters began. In the aftermath of the Channel Dash, or Operation Cerebus, in February 1942, the Royal Navy decided after a series of meetings that it needed a radio-slash-radar countermeasures unit, in modern terms of art, electronic warfare, to prevent the Japanese from doing to them what the Germans had just done to the UK Royal Navy when it snuck the fast battleship Scharnhorst and Gneisenau, plus the heavy cruiser Prince Eugen, through the English Channel with the assistance of radio and radar jamming. To prevent another scenario like the Channel Dash, this RCM group set out to collect information on Japanese radar and radio systems. They would then analyze their findings, distribute the intelligence, and assign the proper countermeasures to respective personnel. This RCM section was based in Sydney, Australia, administered by Royal Australian Navy Office in Melbourne. Its commander was Lieutenant Commander Joel Mace, Royal Australian Navy Voluntary Reserve Special, special meaning he was trained in radar. There was then a decision made, either supported by or stage managed by Mace, according to one of the scholars that I work with, to move the organization to Brisbane under the control of the United States Navy 7th Fleet in or before May 1943. Then in June 1943, this radio and radar counters division was taken over by MacArthur's Southwest Pacific Area General Headquarters under the direct command of General Spencer Agin. General Douglas MacArthur gave his support to the formation of a radio and radar countermeasures division of the General Headquarters Southwest Pacific Area. This was in accordance with the provisions of the approved recommendation of Committee J, Radar Projects, Technique, Measures, and Coordination, and an April 19th letter from the U.S. War Department. Along with General Aiken was a group of officers and others who were referred to as MacArthur's Bataan Gang. But it was General Aiken who would play a pivotal part in the Section 22 operations. MacArthur made Aiken responsible for all Army, Army Air Force, Navy, and Allied communications. 
He was also placed in charge of communications, signals intelligence services, research and development, and radio and radar countermeasures in the Southwest Pacific area. This informal decision was ratified in GHQ Operational Instruction Number 36, issued by MacArthur on 5 July 1943, and in November of 1943, the group was christened Section 22 based on its office number in a Brisbane office building. Section 22 encompassed and organized disparate radio countermeasures elements in the U.S. Army, the U.S. 5th Air Force, the U.S. 7th Fleet, the Royal Australian Air Force, the Royal Australian Navy, and the Australian Army into a coherent whole to deal with the Japanese deployment of radar in the Rabaul and South Pacific areas in 1942 and 43. In February 1944, a letter from the Australian Minister for Air was sent to Minister for Defense and Prime Minister John Curtin. In the letter, it stated that the chief duty of Section 22 was to advise all force commanders on action taken to interfere with and evade enemy radar. In this case, the enemy radar belonging to the Japanese. The organization reached its full maturity in the summer of 1944 after it absorbed the South Pacific theaters RCM organizations, primarily the 13th Air Force and Royal New Zealand Air Force and Royal New Zealand Navy, the South Pacific Theater having become a rear air by that time. Section 22 supported MacArthur's drive to the Philippines and had a role in mapping Japanese radar networks throughout New Guinea, the Dutch East Indies, modern-day Indonesia, the Philippines, South China, Formosa, modern-day Taiwan, and the Ryukus, including Okinawa, and the Japanese home islands. Section 22 didn't just map radar, its members also went into combat. They became radar hunters. Section 22 was extremely blessed in having several physicists from New Zealand that were incorporated into the operation in 1944. These physicists working with American pilots and American scientists from the eastern coast of the United States put together a series of aircraft uh, that were referred to at the time as hunter-killers. Today we would refer to them as wild weasels. Two B-25s and one B-24 that extensively hunted radars throughout New Guinea and the Philippines and into South China Sea. Section 22 also did the first operation with window, what we know today as chaff or radio dipole decoys that reflected radio energy or radar energy to create false signals. These were used in bombing the Balakpikpan refineries in the run-up to the Leyte invasion to take away half of the Japanese Army and Naval Air Forces high-octane gasoline. The bomber, B-24 bombers of the 5th and 13th Air Forces had made two tries at Balakpikpan and both failed at destroying the refineries and along the way, they had taken 6% casualties in aircraft either shot down or rendered a constructive total loss upon their return. Section 22 was successful in their first operation by using the technique of laying chaff. This technique was established in the mid-1930s when British researchers realized they could confuse enemy radar with a cloud of falling strips of metal and suspended lengths of wires. These wires could flood the enemy's radar system with confusing echo signals. Using this technique gave them the success that led them into another raid. The third raid was led by a section from a field unit from Section 22 that laid chaff that brought up Japanese fighters. And out from behind this, 
screen of decoys came a flight of several squadrons, in fact, of P-47 Thunderbolt fighters that destroyed the fighters and made the third rate successful. This reduced the amount of Japanese aviation fuel for the invasion of Leyte. Now that the Japanese had a limited amount of aviation fuel, Section 22 had a stronger advantage for their next two combat operations. The next two major combat operations were Leyte itself and a mining operation that happened afterward. The Leyte operation involved a chaff spoof, not unlike what happened in Normandy in 1944. This spoof may or may not have been effective for the Japanese. The records that Alfred Price found did not indicate that that the Japanese did anything for this particular spoof, but they were very much affected by the mining campaign done in Manila to support the, the invasion of Luzon. The Royal Australian Air Force had PBY Catalina seaplanes that delivered sea mines, but Manila was covered by an integrated air defense built around the latest Japanese radars. It was led by Field Unit 3 of Section 22, which was a U.S. Navy seaplane outfit uh, under uh, Lieutenant Heron, who was a founder of the Airborne Electronic Warfare Enterprise in the United States Navy. He and one other Australian, Catalina, seeded all of the area around Manila for several hours with chaff to keep the Japanese from shooting down the other 20-odd Australian Catalina PBYs that were busy mining Manila so that the Japanese could not sorte from there to strike or to reinforce operations further south. The Section 22 radar hunters had a lot of success in these combat operations, but there was one nuance they kept encountering and that was how the Japanese used their radars. For the manner in which the Japanese used radar was vastly different from anything they had seen. Japanese radars were not for controlling aircraft to, to strike other aircraft. Japanese anti-aircraft fire control directors were much more limited than those of the Allies, and they required earlier warning because they had to be set up looking in the right direction in order to engage successfully air targets. So that was one of the two missions that land-based radar had for the Japanese. The other was sea control. The Australians' mining of Manila Harbor wasn't its only or even its largest sea mining operation. Throughout 1943 and 44, the Royal Australian Air Force was systematically mining ports throughout the Dutch East Indies to prevent oil from going to Japan. The Japanese were using land-based radars around these ports to track where the Catalinas were flying so they could send out mining ships, or excuse me, mine sweeping ships to clear out the mines that were dropped the evening before. So this too is a lesson for today. Just because there is a technology that you think you know, it doesn't mean that someone else won't use the same technology differently for another militarily useful goal. The Japanese continued to surprise the Allies in this way. They used the same technology, but for much different purposes, in ways the Allies weren't expecting. We mentioned earlier that the Japanese adhered to a certain doctrine, called the Decisive Battle, or the Kentai Kesen Doctrine. The Imperial Japanese Navy wrote this doctrine in response to a theory derived from the writings of American naval historian Alfred Thayer Mahon. 
Alfred Thayer Mahon was an American naval strategist in the late 19th and early 20th century. And he wrote a, a theory of naval operations that the Japanese and the Americans both subscribe to, that navies are built to control the ocean. And the way you control the ocean is taking your battle fleet and beating the enemy battle fleet. And once you completely do that, that you will dominate and blockade the enemy to, to force their surrender. Both the American and the Japanese Navy believed in this, and the Kentai Kesson doctrine that the Japanese Navy developed was in direct reaction to its understanding of Alfred Thayer Mahan's uh, theory on how to apply sea power. In Japan's Kentai Kesson, the Japanese Navy believed it would win a war by fighting and winning a single decisive naval action. The Japanese were committed to winning sea power through the use of strong battleship force, and their military strategy revolved around this doctrine. At that time, the first thing that Yamamoto got through was getting Japanese Naval Air Force's night flight pay. So suddenly, the Japanese were putting in lots of hours at night. During this time, Yamamoto was in investigating the technology to create a large force of land-based torpedo bombers to support the Kentai Kesson Doctrine by relieving Japanese Congo-class battlecruisers of the mission of sea control in the South China Sea so they could support the great the fight against uh, the American battle line, that, which would, the Japanese anticipated to be coming from America's west coast. In order to be able to concentrate the Japanese torpedo bombers quickly and effectively to destroy a large surface action group, they needed the ability to bring them all to one point on the ocean at any time in any weather. This was not something that you were going to do at night with a sextant looking at the stars and doing celestial navigation. It had to be a form of radio navigation. So what the Japanese did was they took a technology from Germany, non-directional radio beacons, and they incorporated it into their force structure. But they added one other thing that the United States really didn't understand until late 1943. They added grid maps. They put a grid on the ocean. Find yourself with a non-directional radio beacon. You've got to have a map that shows the location of the beacon emitting any specific code, and then you've got to take two radio direction finding azimuths to this known location. By getting those two azimuths and taking a time on a, a stopwatch of, of 60 or 120 or any um, number of seconds that, that amount to 60, and knowing your speed while you're doing that, you establish a range between the two azimuths. This particular system was used throughout World War II. It went back at least as far as 1937, when the radio detection direction finding equipment was installed on the Mitsubishi G3M Nell torpedo bombers. No later than 1937, the Japanese had this radio C3I system installed to be able to locate American carriers for kamikaze airstrikes. In 1944, the Japanese relied directly upon the C3I system. The maps associated with these grids were not captured until later, in June 1944, when a Marine ground combat unit overran Japanese Admiral Nagumo's headquarters in the Marianas. It took until January of 1945 for these maps to be decoded and provided to the mobile radio intelligence units in a form they could use in real time. It was one of the great strategic surprises in the EMSO realm in the Pacific War.
After the surrender of the Japanese in August-September of 1945, Section 22 was disbanded. For a lot of political reasons, none of its best radar experts, who were Australian military or mobilized New Zealand physicists in military uniform, were involved in the post-mortem evaluations of Japanese military radar and associated electronics industries. It is one of the great ironies of World War II that the best wartime allied experts on Japanese military radar were not allowed to see the Japanese side of the Pacific Radar War to deliver a coherent story of Japanese radar in World War II, as was done with the British military and German radar. As Trent Talenko said, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Eighty years after the Japanese implemented these electronic warfare strategies, we hear their echoes and see their similarities in today's EMSO operations. We can't look at where EMSO is today without reflecting on what we learned in previous stories, like the codebreakers in Europe, the detailed electronic plans behind D-Day, the unexpected surprises of Japanese radar capability, and overall, how we learned to quickly adapt to what the enemy was doing, gain an advantage, and set us on the course today. If you missed these stories, we encourage you to listen to previous episodes. In our next episode, we're going to hear the history of the AN-ALQ-99 tactical jamming system and how it has taken shape after the end of World War II. This podcast is brought to you by the Association of Old Crows. Learn more at crows.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening.